0: Good morning, church family. Good to see you all this morning. And welcome to those who are worshiping online as well. You know, when I was in high school at Upland High many years ago, um, we read for our uh, English Lit course, the sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, Edwards preached that sermon in 1741 in... New England, among the Puritan um, settlers. And that sermon pictures God in some pretty frightening ways. Um, Let me just read a couple of quotes from it. Um, So this is from Edward, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. His wrath towards you burns like fire. And he goes on in that sermon to say to his congregation, you are 10,000 times more abominable in God's eyes than the most hateful serpent is in our eyes. Edwards believed that God's holiness made him hate us and made us disgusting or abominable in God's sight. And because of this, many Puritan Christians in New England lived in a constant state, Of fear. In private journals that historians have have studied, many confessed that they were afraid that they weren't really Christians at all, that they were just fooling themselves that they believed in Jesus. Every time there was an outbreak of a disease or a bad storm, many would run to the church in terror, convinced that it was God's long-awaited judgment that was finally falling upon them for their many sins. Now, there are many things to admire about the Puritans, but their view of God's holiness was questionable. Of course, these days we have the opposite problem, don't we? We we don't really talk a lot about the holiness of God. Uh, Back in 2005, a, a sociologist named Christian Smith coined the phrase moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism to describe the way that many people today view God. Moral therapeutic deism views the whole purpose of life as being happy. And the purpose of God and his existence is to help us achieve that happiness. In moral therapeutic deism, it's believed that God mostly leaves us alone, but he's always available just in case we might need something from God. According to a study done at uh, Arizona Christian University last year, four out of ten Americans embrace moral therapeutic deism, even if they've never heard of it by that name, making it the dominant worldview in our culture today. Moral therapeutic deism is just as distorted as that view of God's holiness that we find in sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, we have been in a series called Living by Faith, based on the book of Hebrews 11-13. through 13. And today we're going to talk about the holiness of faith. Last Sunday we saw that living by faith is like a long-distance race. And today we're going to see that those who run that race, people who live their lives by faith, will grow into greater holiness. Now, throughout the Bible, God is described as holy. And holiness has a couple of different shades of meaning. To to say that God is holy is to say that God is separate and set apart. God is holy in the sense that God is different from anything in creation. God is in a category all by himself. But to say that God is holy is also to say that God is good that he is free from any moral defect or imperfection. God's holiness doesn't mean that God abhors us like a loathsome insect or that we're as abominable to God as a venomous snake. To say that God is holy is to say that God is greater and better than we could ever imagine God to be. And at least eight times in the Bible, God says to his people, be holy as I am holy. That is a pretty remarkable thing to think about. Because we'll never be holy as God is holy. So we become more holy when our lives become more set apart to God, consecrated and devoted to God. And we become more holy as our character begins to reflect more and more of the character of God's goodness as it's revealed to us through God's Son, Jesus. Our mission statement says that that Glenkirk exists in part because we are becoming, we are all becoming more fully devoted followers of Jesus. And that's just another way of saying that we're called to pursue greater holiness in our lives. In this race of faith. And this is a process, a process that we will never outgrow and that we will never complete in this life. Living by faith leads us into greater holiness. It leads us into greater holiness. When we live by faith, we become more and more set apart, consecrated, devoted to God. And as we run the race of faith, Our character and our habits, our affections and our mindset all come to gradually reflect more and more of the goodness of God. And today from Hebrews 12 verses 14 through 29, we're going to see six ways that living by faith leads us into this greater holiness that we're called to. And so if you're able, um, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word today? Verses 14 through 29 of Hebrews chapter 12. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when Esau wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. To darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches this mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. The words once more indicate the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You can be seated. There's a lot in there. You know, we sometimes picture holy people as people who look down on less holy people. In fact, we use the phrase holier than thou to describe people who see themselves as better than everyone around them. And we all know people like that, and they annoy us. If you don't know anyone like that, you might be one of them. We think of holiness as people who divide other people into groups. Holy people and less holy people. We associate holiness with judging people. But verses 14 and 15 here show us that that's not what holiness really is. Greater holiness will free us to release our resentments. To live at peace with people. Holiness calls us to live at peace with people rather than to, to divide. Uh, Bible scholar Mary Healy, her excellent commentary on Hebrews, says that peace in the biblical sense is not a mere absence of conflict, but full harmony in relationships with each other. Pursuing harmony in our relationships with each other is a sign of Holiness. Destroying harmony in our relationships with each other is a sign of unholiness. You see, holiness leads us to embrace God's grace, the free and unearned gift of God's acceptance through His Son Jesus. And so a resentful attitude falls short of God's grace. What is a resentment? I like the way people in the 12-step recovery movement define a resentment. A resentment is revisiting or recycling a past wrong that was done to us. Revisiting or recycling something wrong that was done to us. Hebrews pictures resentments as letting a bitter root grow inside of us. And as we recycle these past wrongs within our hearts and minds, this bitter root grows to produce bitter fruit, which causes trouble for us and defiles the people around us. Again, Mary Healy in her commentary says that even one person whose heart has become bitter through resentment can poison others and thus have a devastating effect on a whole community. See, over time, bitter roots produce bitter fruit, which produces bitter groups, angry, grievance-filled, divided communities, because people have allowed bitter roots of resentment to grow. It's been said that nursing a resentment towards another person is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. See, greater holiness doesn't lead us to become judgmental and bitter and holier than thou. Greater holiness leads us deeper into God's grace, which frees us. It liberates us to release our resentments to God so we can live in harmony in our relationships. Greater holiness also leads us to steward our sexuality wisely. To steward our sexuality wisely. The beginning of verse 16 says, see that no one is sexually immoral. And the word the author uses here is a very general word that describes any violation of the boundaries that God has set up for our sexuality as people. And these boundaries include celibacy for people who aren't married and fidelity between a husband and wife in the context of marriage. You might picture your sexuality as being like a river. At times in life, the river runs fast, like a a raging river with class five rapids. At other times, it runs more slowly. And the banks of this river, the riverbanks, are the boundaries, the wise boundaries that God has revealed to us in his word for how to steward our sexuality. When a person's river overflows its boundaries, it causes harm. Like a flooding river can destroy a city with a mudslide. Yet you can't build a dam to stop this river because our sexuality is a part of us. So instead, the Bible challenges us to learn to steward our sexuality wisely. To learn to keep it flowing within the riverbanks that God has revealed. And honestly, I think this is a more difficult task today than it's ever been. You know, when the Bible was written, most people got married much younger than they do today. When Hebrews was written, the average age of marriage for most people was probably around 16 years old. And so there wasn't much of a a long gap between the onset of a person's sexual awareness and getting married. And I'm certainly not recommending that people get married this young today. I'm just saying that's how they did it back then. Today in the U.S., the average age a person gets married is 33. So an unmarried person today who's running a race of faith, seeking to steward their sexuality wisely, faces a much longer journey. I think it's more challenging for married people today, too. Consider the fact that when the Bible was written, the average life expectancy was 35 years old. And so even if you married young, a lifelong marriage wouldn't be any longer than maybe 20 years. Now, I need to tell you that in the ancient world, Most marriages didn't last that long. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, it was not uncommon for people to have been married six or seven times over the course of their lifetime, which is all the more surprising to us if the average life expectancy was 35. This is why the Christian teaching about fidelity to one's spouse in marriage was a radical teaching back in the ancient world. Here in the U.S., the average life expectancy is about 79 years old, more than 40 years longer than it was in the ancient world. So even if a person waits until they're in their early 30s to get married, a lifelong marriage today is more than double the length of a lifelong marriage when the Bible was written. All this to say that stewarding our sexuality wisely is more challenging than it's ever been. And yet, Greater holiness will motivate us to keep our river flowing within the riverbanks that God has given us. Third, greater holiness leads us to establish godly priorities. To establish godly priorities. Verse 16 and 17 point us to a guy named Esau from the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Esau was the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac and the brother of Jacob. And our author describes Esau as godless. That doesn't mean Esau didn't believe in God. Esau was not an atheist or an agnostic. It means that God was not a significant factor in the priorities that Esau set for his life. And to give us an example, Hebrews points us to an incident from Genesis 25 where Esau was so hungry that he sold his firstborn inheritance rights for a meal to his brother, Jacob that that is an example of Godless priorities. Greater holiness will lead us to establish godly priorities in our lives. priorities that reflect what's important to God. Priorities like loving people over things. priorities like putting God first in our lives, like pursuing peace in our relationships instead of bitterness. Jesus talked about this when he told us to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness in our lives. Greater holiness will lead us to establish godly priorities. Fourth, greater holiness invites us to draw closer to God to draw closer to God. Verses 18 through 24, they're kind of confusing, but they they picture two different mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And these two mountains represent two very different ways of approaching God. Mount Sinai is the mountain where God gave his people the Ten Commandments through Moses. And it's pictured as a place of fear and dread in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. It was a mountain of fire and darkness, gloom and thunder. Picture Mordor from the Lord of the Rings, and you get a picture of Mount Sinai. When God spoke to the people from Mount Sinai, God's voice was so terrifying that the people begged God not to say anything more to them. Even God's messenger, Moses, trembled with fear. These manifestations of God's holiness on Mount Sinai made people shrink back in fear. Jonathan Edwards' sermon sounds a lot like Mount Sinai. But as Christians, this is not the way that we have come to approach God. Instead, we have drawn near to Mount Zion, a different mountain entirely. And Mount Zion was originally the name of the mountain that the city of Jerusalem was on. But here in Hebrews, Zion is a picture of our final destination, the the new Jerusalem that comes from heaven to earth in Revelation 21. Mount Zion is the kingdom of God, which will someday be on earth as it already is in heaven. And it is a joyful assembly, a place where Jesus' church is found. And on Mount Zion, Jesus is the go-between, the mediator. And so instead of shrinking back with fear and dread and terror, we're invited to come near by faith. These two mountains represent two very different ways of approaching God. Mount Sinai of the old covenant before Jesus came. And Mount Zion, the new covenant. Now Mount Zion is also a holy mountain. But because Jesus shed his blood for us, we can come with confidence instead of shrinking back in fear. In fact, drawing near to God is a theme throughout Hebrews. In chapter 4, verse 16, we're invited to to draw near to approach the throne of grace with confidence. And in chapter 10, verse 22, we're invited to draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith gives us rather than shrinking back with dread. Holiness invites us to draw near with faith. Instead of repelling us with terror, holiness frees us to come to God through the blood of Jesus to the joyful assembly of Mount Zion. Fifth, greater holiness warns us to not disregard God's word, to not disregard God's word. In verses 25 through 27, we find the third of three warning passages in Hebrews. The other two are in chapter 6 and in chapter 10. And in verse 25 of of chapter 12 here, we're warned not to turn away from our faith. And that word turn away, it means to to forsake or to abandon or to fall away from our faith. If following Jesus is like running a long-distance race, Turning away from our faith would mean quitting that race. And for these Jewish Christians, it would be abandoning Mount Zion and going back to Mordor. I mean, going back to to Mount Sinai. And so the author warns us, do not refuse him who is speaking to you, God who is speaking to you. Because for Israel, their refusal to listen resulted in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness of not experiencing the fullness of God's promises, all because they refuse to listen to the voice of God. Greater holiness in this race of faith attunes us to God's voice as he speaks to us through his word so we can hear his voice with clarity and respond wholeheartedly. Greater holiness warns us not to disregard God's word. And then lastly, greater holiness leads us to worship. God with awe, to worship God. This journey into greater holiness is a lifelong journey. That's why verse 28 is in the present tense. We are receiving an unshakable kingdom. We haven't fully received it yet. We're not yet in the new Jerusalem. We're not yet at the top of Mount Zion. We are on a journey of becoming more and more devoted to Jesus. We're running the race, but we haven't yet reached the finish line. And meanwhile, he says, along this race, we are called to be thankful. And the word he uses for thankful in verse 28, it's a word that's often used for communion. The Lord's Supper. Communion is a sacrament of gratitude where we remember Jesus' body and blood and experience his presence as we eat and drink with thanksgiving. Our journey of to this unshakable kingdom will lead us to worship God with reverence and awe. And that's different than the fear and dread of Mount Sinai. Reverence and awe are a posture of humility. that recognizes that God is God and we are not. And so we draw near with confidence and assurance by faith. And this chapter ends with a quote from the Old Testament that our God is a consuming fire. On Mount Sinai, the fire of God was terrifying, causing people to shrink back in fear. But on Mount Sinai, the fire of God is purifying, inviting us to draw near, to be made even more holy. This fire of God burns away the impurities of our lives. It refines us like precious metal, like gold or silver. And rather than holiness scaring us and causing us to shrink back from God, greater holiness actually invites us to worship him with holiness and awe. God does not abhor you like we abhor an insect or a spider. God is not repelled by you, like we are repelled by a snake. But God is also not our best buddy, whose sole purpose in life is to make us happy. God is holy, and God is love. His love is holy, and his holiness is loving. And if living by faith is a long-distance race, it's a race that leads us to run uphill sometimes into greater holiness. And as we persevere in this race of faith, we will grow, becoming more fully consecrated to God, our character more reflective of his character. This transformation is the work of the spirit within us, but we must put one foot in front of the other greater holiness is to free us to free us to release our resentments to steward our sexuality wisely to help us establish godly priorities to invite us to draw nearer to god to warn us not to disregard his voice and to lead us to worship him with awe let's pray together Father, thank you for this passage and thank you for the call to holiness. And Lord, how appropriate that we read this passage on a day that we're celebrating communion together. So Father, as we sing this song to prepare our hearts for communion, would you lead and guide us to draw nearer to you with reverence, but not with fear, with confidence. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.